You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Well, church, if you've been with us for any any weeks, uh, we've been previously going through a series uh, of multi-ethnicity, and now we're jumping back into the Gospel of Matthew. So this morning, we're looking at Matthew uh, 19, verses 23 through 30. Uh, Last week, we had the great opportunity of looking at one of my favorite texts, the rich young ruler, um, and and really uh, understanding um, his, his struggle to hold on to his incompleteness without Christ. This morning, we have an awesome another opportunity um, to look at the second half of this story. And it begins and it says this, truly, I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the needle of an eye than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Last week, we discussed the fact that Jesus called to salvation demands radical surrender. I love what Pastor uh, David Platt says in his commentary about this. He says this, salvation is a summons to lose your life, to let go of everything you have and everything you are in submission to Jesus. That is what it means to be a Christian. See, Jesus' instructions were quite clear and quite concise. He says to this rich young ruler, if you want to be perfect, and remember that word perfect is the Greek word teleos. That is the Greek word for completeness or wholeness. It is the idea of a broken bone being brought back together. He says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your belongings, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then... Come follow me. Notice with me that Jesus did not give him an option to consider. That Jesus did not give this man, he did not give the rich young ruler an option to consider, but rather Jesus gave him a command to obey. I love this because this is a good reminder for us that Jesus is not afraid. Jesus is not afraid to knock on the door of our idols and demand allegiance to himself. You don't serve a weak God. You don't serve a God who is kind of halfway in, kind of halfway out. There are two common errors that we can have, do, look at when we look at this, these verses in Matthew chapter 19. Hear them again with me again. Truly, I tell you, it is hard or it will be hard for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are two common errors that we can have by looking at this passage. We can universalize the passage, meaning that we look at that passage and we say that every follower of Jesus needs to sell everything they have and give the proceeds to the poor. And let me be clear, this passage is not saying that a Christian can't own private property or possessions. It's not saying that. But the other error that we can have, not just having a universal aspect of this passage, we can also minimize it. We can truncate it, if you will. You see, in that regard, Jesus does call some of his followers to sell everything they have. He does call some to do that. 
and to give to the poor. And the reality is that he could call any of us to do the same. I love what one commentator says about this. He says this. He says, the fact that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom, he w- whom, to whom he would issue that command. You see, church, church family, as Jesus continues to engage culture, he does so in a remarkable and surprising way. I, I, in other words, we put it this way. Christ not only triumphs over culture, but Christ actually engages culture. In our story today, I want to outline it by giving you these four subtitles, if you will. Number one is the fact. We see that in verse 23. The fact is this. Wealth pulls a person from the kingdom. Wealth has the capacity, it has the allurement, and it has the ability to pull you away from the kingdom. Then we see the illustration in verse 24. That Jesus gives, that it is easier for a camel to go through the needle of an eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. We see the shock in verse 25. Notice the question that is being asked by the disciples. Well, who then can be saved? And then we finally see the hope in verse 26. And the hope is simply this, that God is the only hope for humanity, especially the rich. Let's look at our first subtitle, the fact. The fact is in verse 23, and it simply says this. Listen to Jesus' words. Truly, I tell you, it will be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, why we have to ask ourselves, why would it be hard? Or why is it hard? Well, much like us, These disciples, remember, Jesus is not only triumphing over culture, he's also engaging within it. And within a culture, there were some tenets that were were just assumed and perceived to be true. And the culture had been taught that prosperity is God's blessing. The culture had been taught that a person receives and has only because God is blessing him or her. The culture had been taught that prosperity is the reward of righteousness and obedience. In other words, they have been taught that God blesses a person with the things of this earth if they are righteous and if they are obedient. It it should sound kind of familiar. (laughs) It should kind of sound kind of familiar because the prosperity gospel was alive and prevalent even in the first century, too. But notice what Jesus is saying. Jesus is actually saying the very opposite. Jesus is saying that a prosperous person would most likely never enter into the kingdom or into heaven. Now, Jesus was saying, what Jesus was saying here is that prosperity posed such a dangerous threat to a person that his or her eternal doom was almost assured. Remember what we said earlier, that that wealth pulls a person away from the kingdom of God. 
It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Why? Because wealth pulls away. It has the allurement or the enticement to pull a person away from the kingdom of God. It's much like a magnet. As a kid, I used to love, I used to love putting together, th- together things. And what I didn't realize was that there was a magnet that was attached to the things that I like to build. That, that magnet would pull on the metal and allow things to come together. It would pull it from my hand and it would pull it towards the thing that I bring it close to. It's much like the irresistible smell of honey to a bear, like Winnie the Pooh. Everybody likes Winnie the Pooh, right? And when you see Winnie the Pooh, you know, he just, he just smells it. He says, Piglet, I just, I just smell something that just smells so good. It's, it's like that irresistible smell of honey to a bear or namely even a bear named Winnie the Pooh. It's much like your child pulling and tugging and, and fighting with you and trying to, trying to avert you and, and redirect you in the candy aisle while at Walmart all greens. Wanting you to buy everything that looks good and appeasing to them. Beloved of God, it is imperative that we don't universalize this passage. And it's also equally imperative that we don't minimize this passage. It is imperative that we recognize and realize the danger and the deadly nature of desire for possessions. I love what one commentator said about this. He says, we are accustomed to thinking of wealth only as a blessing, but it is often a barrier to our relationship to God. Paul actually warns us with these words in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. It says, but those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap. And many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Before we go any further in our text, there's two questions we have to consider. Who are the rich? And the second one is this. What is the problem? Let's go to our first question. Who are the rich? Well, let me make it very simple for you. The rich are any of us who have anything beyond what we need. That is the rich. The rich is any of us who have anything beyond what we need. I've been enjoying during COVID um, having the opportunity, especially with sports being on a hiatus. Now that sports is back, I'm watching my sports. Um, Go Denver Nuggets. I want them to. I am a LeBron hater, so I will make that public. But no, um, I, no, LeBron, I love you. If you're looking at this, I love you, man. Um, but I had a great opportunity of watching these shows that my wife really likes, like HTV. HGTV, is that how you say it? Yeah, HGTV and these other shows. And one of the terms that I learned while watching these shows with my wife is this term that I, just blew my mind. It fascinated me. You know what that term was? That term was, I got to go over my page, backstock. I never even heard of this. Does anybody know what backstock is? Please raise your hand. I want to be friends with you. Backstock, right? Backstock is anything you have in your house that what? You got more of, right? You have extra of. So essentially what Jesus is saying here is that 
any the, the rich are not just those whom we imagine to be rich. When we read this passage, we don't want to think about ourselves. We want to think about everybody else but us. Because we figure that everyone else or someone else is more richer or more wealthier than us. But what Jesus is saying is that if you have backstock, if you have backstock in your house, if you have more than you actually need in your house, then I'm talking to you. (laughs) See, the problem with wealth is not wealth itself. The problem with wealth is that wealth consumes the rich. It consumes their thinking. It consumes their actions. It consumes their motivations. It consumes all of their life. And it's at the epicenter of their life where God should and has died and resurrected to reign supreme. That's the problem with wealth. Wealth creates the big eye of independence. It makes us think in a way that is not outwardly focused, but self-centered. It makes us think about self more than anyone else. Here we are in a world that reels in in desperate need. But we can't think of anyone except ourselves. Here we are going to Costco buying three or four months of backstock to fill up our pantries and forgetting about those who are literally going hungry, maybe even in the congregation that is sitting next to you within six feet of you right now. Wealth is not the problem, but wealth, what wealth is, is the problem is wealth, what wealth causes us to do. It causes us to be consumed with this idea of not just having wealth, but also maintaining it. Wealth also tends to make a person selfish because the more we get, the more we want. There's always another dollar. There's always more interest we can get. Another thing that wealth does, it tends to make us have a false sense of security. Notice and remember what Jesus says. He says, it is extremely difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom. How is it difficult? It's so difficult that Jesus used an absurd illustration to make his point. Look with me at verse 24. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus is using a proverb to express an impossibility. Now, we have to ask ourselves, what is this eye of the needle? What is this idea that Jesus is talking about? There are three options we can look at to express the absurdity of this illustration. Number one, the most popular understanding of this eye of the needle is that it was a small gate in the wall surrounding Jerusalem. You see, the small gate set right beside a large gate. And the large gate was used to have commerce and people go in and out of throughout the day. But at night, what they would do was close that large gate and they would open up the small gate in order for people to go through. But the thing about the small gate is that it was barely big enough for a normal sized human to get through. 
So think about the absurdity, absurdity that Jesus is saying here. Think about the irony that he's trying to make here. Jesus uses the camel, the largest animal known among the Jews, and he compares it to or contrasts it to the eye of the needle, which was one of the smallest openings known to man. Notice the comparison between a camel and the rich man. Just as a camel is too big to go through the eye of the needle, a rich man is too big to go through the gate of heaven. Just as a camel was not made to go through the eye of the needle, a man was not made for wealth. But wealth was made for man. In other words, man was not made to be, be, be possessed by and enslaved by the things of this world. The things and the possessions of this world. And lastly, notice the comparison how a camel works for its master while a man or even a rich man is to work for his master, namely God. Now, let me be clear on, my, on this point because I want to be very clear. God doesn't have a problem with you having wealth. It doesn't make sense for God to have a problem with you having wealth because Psalm says that he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. So God's issue is not wealth. God's issue is when your wealth has you. And when you are enslaved by the things of this world rather than the things of God. I love what one commentator says. It says, man was not made for things money, wealth, possessions, but things were made for man. Yet man allows himself to become enslaved to things, even lusting after more and more. Wealth, money, possession, things is only a commodity, a means, a tool to help man carry out his purpose and service upon the earth. At least that's what wealth is supposed to be. But most men become the tool and the commodity of money. I love how Psalm 118.9 says it. It says it this way. It says, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to take trust in nobles or even princesses or even wealth. See, in this culture, there were three main wrong views of God. Number one, the first wrong view was this, that the rich were excessively blessed by God. The, uh, the second wrong view was that one's obedience always earned them heavenly rewards. And then the third wrong view was that temporary benefits are worth more than heavenly blessings. So get the picture here. The disciples hear what Jesus is teaching them, but they also are understanding clearly how this juxtaposes against the culture and the understanding of how they understand wealth. So they come to the most logical conclusion that we all would come to if we were following Jesus at this point. Look with me at verse 25. Look at the question that they ask. How can we be saved? How can anyone be saved if the rich can't get into heaven? And we think that they deserve heaven because it seems like God is blessing them. If the rich can't get into heaven, how in the world can I get into heaven? Verse 25, we have the shock. 
we have this great question. Listen, listen to what, what is written in the scriptures. When the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, then who can be saved? This question is a legitimate one to consider. The disciples were shocked and thoroughly dismayed. Christ was turning the upside down world right side up. And Christ was saying something diametrically opposed to what they and everyone else had always thought and had always known. I've had, I've had many mistakes that I've made as a parent, but I want to share with you one of my biggest ones. My daughter was around two years old, maybe two, four years old, and we were having trouble with obedience and following instructions and all that stuff like most two-year-olds. I think they call two year, uh, the year two-year-old terrible twos, but we had terrible twos and treacherous threes. <laughs> that was what we called us as we grew up as parents. But I remember I got this bright idea as a young dad, and I knew it was a bright idea because I felt like it came from God, but it really didn't come from God. <laughs> And I got this mantra, and I said, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach my daughter this mantra. And this mantra was very simple. Parents, listen, if, you're, if you haven't been listening to me up to this point, don't do this, what I'm about to say. Don't do this. This is bad parenting. I said, obedience gets rewards. And I thought I was doing her a favor. I was saying, like, listen, when you do what's right, you'll get a reward. I thought I, in my mouth, it makes perfect sense, right? Like, it makes sense. You, you go and... You pick up your toys, oh, daddy will give you a little cookie or a little, little, you know, whatever. Man, you do something that daddy actually, oh, here you go. Here, but, but as you can imagine, any parent in here that probably can imagine, it backfired on me quickly, right? Because then it started off really good. My daughter was like, hey, I'll go do this and I'll get this. And it started off really good. She started doing things. But here's where the problem came in. My two-year-old daughter at the time, like any two-year-old would, started equating a love for the rewards and not for the obedience. And she desired more so to get the reward than just to obey. How did I see this manifest? How did I see this come out? It would come out like we'd be chilling at home. I'm watching a game, and she'll be in the back room doing something. I hear, doom, 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 doom. Daddy, I stacked my, I stacked my bri uh, bricks up, and I put them in, my, um, in the corner. Can I have a cookie? <laughs> or daddy, hey, I, I, did, I did something without asking. Give me my reward. Give me what's, what, what's coming to me. This was the mantra and this was the mindset that the disciples also had and lived up to. They understand and they thought that obedience always gets rewards. But notice the hope in verse 26. Notice what it said here in verse 26 in chapter 19. Jesus looked at them and said this simple word. He says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I love this because notice with me that there is only one hope for every person. And that one hope that all of us have, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you have backstock or you don't have backstock, the only hope for every person is God's grace. And God's grace, it gives us what we simply don't deserve. No philosophy, no psychology, no medicine, no education, no politics, and no social movement could do this. 
Only the grace of God can change the soul of a man. Amen? I need you to understand with me, and I need you to hear with me, that impossibilities are only made possible by God. Adam was met, was met with the impossibility of being separated from God. Noah was met with the impossibility of building a boat on dry ground. Abraham was met with the impossibility of having a son in his old age. Hagar was met with the impossibility of being rejected by Abraham and Sarah and left to die in the desert all alone until God showed up as God Elroy, the God who sees her. Isaac was met with the possibility of being led up the mountain by his father Abraham without a sacrifice and without clear instructions. Jacob was met with the impossibility of loving Rachel, yet not being able to experience the joy and privilege of being a parent due to her having a barren womb. Joseph was met with the impossibility of being betrayed by his brothers and being falsely incarcerated for 13 years for simply being and living as a man of integrity. Gideon was met with the impossibility of having an innumerable, going against an innumerable army with only 300 men. Ruth was met with the impossibility of being a foreign, a strange foreigner and a forgotten widow amongst the nation of Israel. David was met with the impossibility of being anointed as king of, of, of God while Saul was still sitting on the throne and he was unwilling to succumb his crown to another. Ezra was met with the impossibility of being alone in the exile. Nehemiah was met with the impossibility of rebuilding the broken walls of Jerusalem. Esther was met with the impossibility of being a beautiful queen with seemingly no voice or no power to the effect that she needed to help her people survive genocide. Job was met with the impossibility of unexpected suffering. Isaiah was met with the impossibility of longing for an unknown Messiah. Ezekiel was met with the impossibility of calling dry and dead bones to come alive. Daniel was met with the impossibility of being sentenced into a den of hungry lions. Hosea was met with the impossibility of being married to a promiscuous woman who was committed to everyone except her own husband. Amos was met with the impossibility of desiring to see justice fulfilled within an unjust world. Jonah was met with the impossibility of being swallowed whole by a fish because of his disobedience and arrogance towards God and his desire for Nineveh. Habakkuk was met with the impossibility of maintaining his faith in God despite having no evidence of God's grace in his life. And even Jesus was met with the impossibility of crucifixion and being placed in a borrowed tomb. Notice with me, if you are experiencing some type of impossibility, if you are experiencing, if you are in a situation right now where you feel like God is impossible, my God, beloved, you are in a good spot. And you're in a good place. Because our God is a God who, long, who, 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 who causes impossibilities to become possible. A lot of times in our lives, God places in, in predicaments. He places us in situations not to destroy us, but simply to refine us. Not to cause our demise, but to allow us to reflect and remember in the faithfulness of our God. 
I need you to hear me today because I know some people, I'm looking at some people who are facing some impossible things right now. You're facing loved ones who are sick. You are facing children who are wayward and disobedient. You are facing financial strife and and, and insecure. You are facing the impossible. But I need you to know, beloved, that you have a God who causes the impossible things to be made into a possibility. He's done it before, and he'll do it again. Look at his resume and remember his faithfulness. If you are experiencing some type of impossibility within your life today, rejoice. For every impossibility is made possible by God. Notice with me in verses 27 through 30, Peter responds to him. See, we have left everything and followed you. So what will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. There are, two, there are two impossibilities that are made possible by God. Number one, rich man can be saved by God. I love this because it's a good reminder for us that God's grace is the prerequisite of and the exclusive means for his salvation. Remember what Ephesians 2 said? For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can burn. I don't know about you, but that's good news for me today. <laughs> it's good news to know that I'm saved by grace through faith. And this is not for myself. I couldn't conjure this up. I couldn't earn this. It's a, God, it's a free gift from God that was paid for by the precious blood of his son, Jesus. Not from works. Not from anything I do. Not from my obedience getting me rewards. So that I may not boast. So the first impossibility made possible by God is that rich man can be saved. That there's hope for you and I, even as we struggle with the allurement of this world there's still hope in the gospel, that the gospel is greater than our temptations. Amen. The second reality, the second impossibility that we see that's made possible by God is that heavenly rewards are reserved for the saints of God. That heavenly rewards are reserved for the saints of God. I love this because in this last passage here, Jesus literally paints out and provides for us a good picture. He says three things. Number one, in the renewal of all things, there are two types of renewals that happens in this world. The first one is the renewal that we experience in rebirth or having salvation, being dead in our sins and our trespasses and being made alive through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, placing our faith in the eternal work of Jesus and allowing him to be our firm and secure foundation for our salvation. That is a, the greatest, one of the greatest renewals that we get to see. 
But there's also another renewal. We haven't seen it yet. It's all, we're in the already, but not yet. We see glimmers of it, but we haven't seen it in its consummation. And the second renewal is the renewal of the universe. Now, Jesus returns. When he comes back into this earth, he's not just coming back to, to just uh, give people high fives, but he's coming back riding on a white horse with a, uh, a name that no one understands written on his thigh with a word, uh, a sharp sword that is coming out of his mouth to place judgment upon this world and to remake heaven on earth. We also see that Jesus says the person who left houses or brothers or sisters or children or fields because of my name will receive and reward. It's a good reminder for us that the believer will be rewarded because he or she has left all. That there are rewards. And just as I got <laughs> that situation wrong with my daughter when I taught her wrongly that obedience gets rewards, the Lord helped me to realize that I was placing that wrong emphasis where it needed to be. I was placing the emphasis on the reward and not on the obedience. So this is the way that God had me to redeem myself. Instead of teaching my children, my, my, my daughter at the time, that obedience gets rewards, you know, I, you know what I did? I said this, obedience honors God. Because <laughs> that's, that's where the emphasis needs to be, right? The emphasis doesn't need to be on the reward. The emphasis needs to be on God, that if you do, if you, if, if you, if you, if daddy sees you doing a good thing or if daddy don't sees you do good, doing a good thing, God sees you doing a good thing. And you want to honor God with your life and not just trying to do things in order to get something that you want. I, I hope that helps somebody this morning. Stop trying to get God to do, to, to, to like you. God doesn't just like you, he loves you, and he has the, the, the marks in his hands to prove it. You don't have to earn your love for God. You don't have to do things to make God love you. You are loved by God, therefore you can use your life to honor him, amen? Obedience honors God. I, I just want to talk to somebody, I know... I know my teachers out there, y'all doing a great job doing NTI. I have a teacher right here, and I'm sure I have many teachers out here too that I don't know about, but I want to commend you, and I want to let you know that the things that you're doing matters not just for your children, but it also matters in the, in the kingdom of God, that you are, you are literally staying up all night and trying to figure out technology that you've never been trained for. You're trying to figure out how to help these kids not just uh, learn material, but learn it in such a way that they can grow from it. And God sees your efforts. He sees your hardship. and He sees what you're doing. And your obedience will not just get you rewards, but your obedience will honor God. Let me talk to my mothers out there who are staying home with your children. I know you are tired of being a coach and, and principal and teacher and counselor all in one day. I, I know that's troublesome for you. I know that it's been um, just been problematic and you may feel like you're about to burst every single day of the week. But I want you to know that your obedience honors God. We have to get away from this aspect of believing that obedience is always neutral. When you obey God and when you submit yourself to him, you're not just submitting yourself to him, but you're turning away from the kingdom of darkness. 
And you're allowing God to create in you a desire to not just live for him, but a desire to love him through your obedience. And that's what I pray for our church. I pray that we don't just obey God. I pray that we would love God through our obedience, that it wouldn't be a burden to do the things that God asks us to do, but it actually will be a delight. It actually will be our pleasure. It actually will bring much joy to our soul to turn to the living God who has given himself for our salvation. That's what I pray for myself, and that's what I pray for us as a church. Notice this last thing. Because this, will be, this theme will be picked up on next week as we look at the parable next week. Jesus says this term. He says the first will be last and the last will be first. Because of time, let me just simplify what he's saying here. He's saying simply that God himself, that Christ himself will be faithful to execute perfect justice. He will be faithful to execute perfect justice. This, this speaks to two aspects of this reality, the great reversal and also the great inclusion. The great reversal is that many people at the day of judgment, many people will be switched around. And many whom we esteemed and rewarded the highest here on earth or, or placed to be the highest or most significant here on earth, will be thought to be the weakest and low, lowest before the crown and before the presence of Jesus. We're going through the color compromise right now with about 17 to 20 people in our church every Sunday night. We've been doing it for the last five, six, I think it's our sixth week, Phil, fifth week that we've been going through it. And one of the most horrific things that we've been experiencing as we look at the history of racism within our country has been the question that was brought up last week by many of our people that were involved. How in the world could Christians, how could men, how could women, how could slaves who said they believed in the Bible rape, abuse, and kidnap African people for their, as their property? How can that happen? How can that happen? And, and one of the things that we said last week was, was, first of all, we don't know who was a Christian or who was not. So let's be, let's be careful with that. And even here, we, we need to be careful because this is what this is talking about. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. That many who think that they are something here, many even here who think that they got everything and they're doing a big thing here, when they get to heaven, they're going to find out that what they were doing for was more for themselves and less, less for God. But many people on this world who felt like you didn't matter or you weren't seen or your tears weren't heard or your cries weren't responded to when you get to the throne room of heaven and you finally get to see Jesus' face, he is going to give you the rewards that maybe this world could not give you while you were here. I think that deserves an amen. It's not just the great reversal, but it's also the great inclusion. And the great inclusion simply says this, that God's grace extends to all people who believe, regardless of their timing, as long as there's breath in their lungs, and God's grace is made available to them through Christ, salvation is here. 
That no matter where you are or when you, if you profess Christ, if you look to him and you see him for what he, who God has sent him to be, your salvation and your sacrifice, if you look to him, even as a thief on the cross did on the very hours and the very moments before he died and placed his faith in Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and says, and today you will be with me in paradise at the very last hour. As long as there's breath in your lungs and as long as Christ's salvation is still available for you to repent of your sins and look to him anew, there's always hope for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we do love you and we do thank you. We thank you, God, that you are the author and you are the executor of perfect justice. God, you know every single one of our hearts. Father, I ask that your grace will cover us even now. As we partake of this communion meal together, may we be reminded of the sufficiency and the beauty and the fullness of Christ as being our provision, our provider, and also our peace. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.